well. Amen. Amen. It is wonderful. Thank you to our choir and our orchestra leading us in worship this morning. It's so good to see each of you here. And I want to also say that I'm so glad that you're here. If you have a Bible, I want you to find it, um, take it, be finding your place in Romans chapter 1. Romans chapter 1. And we're in a series of studies where we're studying Paul's letter to the church at Rome. And this is the eighth message that I've preached from chapter 1. And I've got good news. I'm going to finish chapter 1 this morning. And we'll move on to chapter 2. From time to time, people will say, why did, you, why did you preach the sermon that you preached? And I'll usually just say, well, that was because it was what was next. When you preach verse by verse and you preach through books of the Bible, you deal with the passage that's next. And so that's what we're going to do this morning. In fact, this is very appropriate, really. Um, especially as it relates to our student ministry and our Radiate Weekend. Uh, You students have spent the weekend in Romans chapter 12, and I know that you've heard some powerful, powerful messages um, from Romans chapter 12 on what it means to be transformed. If you notice their t-shirts that they're wearing this morning, uh, that word transformed is there on the shirt. And the Apostle Paul, that's what he's talking about in the book of Romans, how the, how the gospel transforms us. And Jesus changes us from the inside out. And we're not to be conformed to the world around us, to the pattern of the world's thinking around us, but we're to be transformed by the renewing of our minds. And what is it that, how is our mind renewed, but that it's the gospel and it's the truth of God's word as our lives are saturated with the truth of God's Word. I'll read the text in just a moment, but I came across an interesting story in the news that sort of circulated around last year, and it caught the attention of the media about a particular problem in the state of Delaware that involved an invasive species known as pot-bellied pigs. Apparently, according to the article, potbelly pigs are running wild in Delaware, alarming the state's agricultural officials, raising the risk of damage and disease. And the problem started when people bought these little pigs as pets, but they quickly realized that they really couldn't control them. And so the Department of Agriculture said that in this article, owners who can no longer manage these little pigs are likely to relinquish ownership of these pigs and allow them to roam freely. And sellers often mislead buyers by calling the pigs micro-pigs or teacup pigs or mini-pigs. But pot-bellied pigs can weigh more than 200 pounds and live up to 20 years and they reproduce like rabbits. The writer of the article said this, people uh, apparently when they no longer can keep them as pets, they turn them loose, they become stray and potentially feral animals. And when allowed to run wild, they destroy crops, they contaminate water sources and increase disease risks for human wildlife, uh, humans, wildlife, and livestock. And that's not something we can have going on in the state of Delaware. So if you are... Moving to Delaware, beware of the potbelly pig. Now, I read that and I thought to myself, that's really an appropriate illustration for sin and what sin will do in my life and your life. 
Because oftentimes we think that we can allow certain pet sins in our lives because from our perspective, they seem manageable or tame. Only to find out that really they're not. And before you know it, you've got this insatiable monster on your hands because sin tends to run wild. And that's really a picture that's painted for us in Romans chapter 1. It's that of sin and man's depravity as it's running wild. And Romans chapter 1, really verses 18 through 32, represent the most extensive treatment of this subject, depravity, really that we find anywhere in the Bible. And what am I referring to when I use that word depravity? Well, depravity describes the fallen nature of mankind. That all of us in Adam have inherited Adam's nature. It's a fallen sin nature. Depravity doesn't mean that we are as bad as we can be all of the time because we know that we can do terrible things. But it does mean that we are all as bad off as we possibly can be. It means that sin has affected every part of us and that we're helpless to save ourselves. We need Jesus to be our Savior, and He's our rescuer. And that's what the gospel tells me. It's why it's such good news. And so Paul is really giving the bad news here in Romans chapter 1 before he goes on to explain the good news. And so what he says here, it's painful. It presents an ugly picture, but a very real picture of the depravity of mankind. And so keep in mind that as we read these verses in just a moment... Uh, the Apostle Paul is explaining why we all need the gospel. And he shows us where our unbelief and our rejection of God's truth ultimately will lead us. And it's not a pretty picture at all. Now, if you have your Bible there, why don't you stand with me? Let's read. And I'm going to read beginning at verse number 24. And the very first word in Romans 1:24 is that word, therefore. And that's a word that links what Paul is about to say with what he's already said in the paragraph from verse 18 through verse 23. In fact, I spent the last two weeks sort of walking through that passage where he explains that humanity as it stands now because of sin and unrighteousness, fallen humanity is under the wrath of God. He said something about the gospel of God in his opening statements here in Romans 1. And the gospel of God tells us about the righteousness of God, which is something that we all need because outside of the righteousness of God, all that's left is the wrath of God. And that's what he's explaining here in this passage and how the wrath of God ultimately it's revealed against man's ungodliness and his unrighteousness. He's taken the truth of God. He's suppressed it. He's pressed it down in his own unrighteousness. He's exchanged the worship of God for idols. And so that therefore, in verse 24, is the next logical sequence of where our idolatry and rejection of God will lead us. And so in verse 24, he begins dealing with behavior. He's dealt with belief, now he's dealing with behavior because behavior is always a byproduct of belief. And so notice he says, therefore, God gave them up referring to fallen humanity, that's us, apart from Christ. Therefore, God gave them up in the lust of their hearts to impurity, 
to the dishonoring of their bodies among themselves because they exchanged the truth about God for a lie and worshiped and served the creature rather than the creator who is blessed forever. Amen. For this reason, God gave them up to dishonorable passions. For their women exchanged natural relations for those that are contrary to nature. And the men, likewise, gave up natural relations with women and were consumed with passion for one another. Men committing shameless acts with men and receiving in themselves the due penalty for their error. And since they did not see fit to acknowledge God, God gave them up to a debased mind to do what ought not be done. They were filled with all manner of unrighteousness and evil, covetousness, malice. They're full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, maliciousness. They're gossips, slanderers, haters of God, insolent, haughty, boastful, inventors of evil, disobedient to parents, foolish, faithless, heartless, ruthless. Though they know God's righteous decree that those who practice such things deserve to die, they not only do them, but give approval to those who practice them. I thought about doing something very different this morning. When we read this passage, I thought that I would have you stand after I read the passage. But here's how I would have you stand. Every person in the room who at some point in your life, if you have been guilty of committing one of the sins that have been mentioned in Romans 1, stand to your feet. And I would have been the very first one standing to my, my feet. And my reason for saying that is simply this. We're not talking about them this morning. We're talking about us. Apart from Jesus. And so what you need to do in this passage, you really need to write, maybe there at the top of the margin or on your notes page, this statement. But for the grace of God, there go I. And so I want to speak this morning from this subject. God gave them up. It's a phrase that Paul uses three times here in this paragraph. What does it mean? Well, I'm going to show you here in just a few moments. So would you pray with me? Our Father and our God, it is with grateful hearts and humble hearts that we bow before you this morning to say that we love you and we're so thankful for your transforming word, for the power of the gospel of Jesus Christ that Paul said he's not ashamed of. And there's no other way for a man or a woman to be righteous before God apart from faith in Jesus Christ. And Lord, when we're left up to ourselves in our depravity, this is where it always leads, this passage that we've read. And so, Lord, as a preacher this morning, I pray that you would fill me with the Holy Spirit. Lord, give your people a listening ear and a responsive heart. I pray that every word that's spoken this morning, Lord, would be useful and profitable. Your people don't need to hear the wisdom of man, but they need the truth of God. And that's what we have here in the pages of your word. And so, Lord, we bless and glorify your name. 
In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. Amen. You may be seated. The passage that we've read explains for us in vivid detail why we all need the righteousness which comes by faith. Because apart from this righteousness, the Bible says that we're all under the wrath of God. That's, that's the clear statement of the Apostle Paul back up in verse number 18. So in that sense, there's the urgency of the gospel that's communicated. And whether we realize this or not, we all live in a world where evil forces are at work in the world to seek to undo the world. There is the enemy of our own fallen nature. There is the enemy of all souls, Satan, who seeks to exploit your fallen nature, to keep people blind to the truth. He's a master deceiver who works to unite the fallen world of mankind in its rebellion against God. And so evil then shows up in the lives of both individuals as well as entire movements in society. I'm reminded of what the Russian novelist Alexander Solzhenitsyn once said, if only there were vile people committing evil deeds and it were only necessary to separate them from the rest of us, he says, but the line dividing good and evil cuts through the heart of every human being. And who's willing to destroy a piece of his own heart? So it takes the honest admission of all of us this morning to say that there is something inside of us and something around us that leads us to hurt ourselves and others. And it's the enemy known as our own fallen nature that wreaks havoc in the world. It's what's been referred to in Scripture as the mystery of iniquity. And what we see in the world around us is really the outworking of sin's depravity. And it always begins in our own heart. And that's what Paul is describing here in Romans chapter 1. He's, he's painting the picture of the entire world of fallen humanity. And, and left up to ourselves, here's where sin and depravity will always lead us. It doesn't take us up, it always takes us down. And so he's describing God's righteous judgment of a world that has rejected his truth and his understanding. And so three times in this passage, Paul uses this, this, this phrase, God gave them up. And it's one of the most sobering phrases in all of the Bible. You say, okay, well, what does it mean? Well, it describes the judicial abandonment of humanity by God, which is brought about as the result of persistent unbelief and refusal to submit to the truth. It's what the psalmist describes in Psalm 81, verse 12. So I gave them over to their stubborn hearts to follow their own counsels. Or Proverbs 1.29, because they hated knowledge and did not choose the fear of the Lord, would have none of my counsel and despised all my reproof. Therefore, they shall eat the fruit of their own way and have their fill of their own devices. So it's God allowing sinful humanity, having resisted his will, having rejected his truth, they then reap the consequences of their own sinful decisions. And so God gave them over in that sense. Now don't think of it as sort of this passive abandonment where almost as if God is taking his hands off the steering wheel of the universe and he's no longer involved 
in our lives or no longer involved in, in, in the world around us. That's not what this means. But the expression here describes an active decision as God hands humanity over to its depravity, not out of a sense of frustration, but to accomplish a very specific purpose. Donald Gray Barnhouse has said that these last nine verses in the first chapter of Romans are the most terrible verses in all the Bible. It's the description of mankind abandoned by God, and the scene is a frightful one. The cause of the abandonment was the successive departure from God by the human soul. In the successive steps of desertion, which began with the failure to acknowledge God in worship and thanksgiving, and then continues down through the various stages of the deification of human reason and the ultimate folly of man, until having departed from God, God now departs from man. And so it's a sobering, sobering passage of Scripture to read. And it reveals how sin becomes exceedingly sinful. It doesn't stay like a cute little pot pig. It becomes a 200-pound savage beast. So that we may start in one place, but we never stop there. In depravity, we go deeper and deeper into the abyss. And the only hope of rescue is the Lord Jesus Christ and his gospel. And so when you see this phrase, God gave them up, understand that it's God giving sinful humanity over to reap the consequences of their sinful decisions. And so let's look at this phrase by phrase and and sort of let me just explain for you in detail what the Apostle Paul is referring to here. How did God give them up? Well, number one, notice that God gave them up to their idolatrous pursuits. Idolatrous pursuits. So that the list of sins and sinful practices that Paul describes in these verses come as the direct result of idolatry. Immorality is always the fruit of idolatry. Where there are problems horizontally, It's because there's a problem first, vertically. And so a key principle from this passage that I really want to hope that you come to to grasp this morning is this. Damaging our vertical relationship with God always damages our horizontal relationship with creation. If in verses 18 through 23, the Apostle Paul is describing that damage to our vertical relationship with God, we've exchanged the glory of God for the worship of images and idols. Now, in verses 24 through the end of the chapter, he's showing us how that leads to a destruction horizontally in our life as we set out on this path towards self-destruction. And it damages our relationship even with the created order around us. You know, we live in a society, a visual society, that's drawn to images. We come up with an image of something that really is an ultimate obsession in our life, and then we bow down to that. It's called idolatry. And the direct consequence of idolatry is self-destruction. And so pay attention how there's this self-destructive, downward spiral that's described by the Apostle Paul in these verses. It's almost as if he's painting this picture of of mankind as it's sort of spiraling down this spiral staircase, man's rejection of God leading him to total self-destructive belief and behavior. You go back up and look at verses 21, 22, and 23. He's shown how it really begins with 
refusal to honor God as such. So it begins with this blatant irreligion. They know God, but they don't honor him as God. And then it leads to shameless ingratitude. Uh, Verse 21 says, neither do they give thanks. And then it leads to this empty-headed, this just void intellectualism where they become completely empty and futile in their thinking so that their foolish hearts are darkened. And then that leads to sophisticated ignorance. Verse 22, claiming to be wise, they become fools. Eugene Peterson paraphrases Romans 1, 18 through 23 in this way. People knew God perfectly well, but when they didn't treat him like God, refusing to worship him, they trivialized themselves into silliness and confusion so that there was neither sense nor direction left in their lives. They pretended to know it all, but were illiterate regarding life. That leads to exchanged idolatry described in verse 23. They exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man. So they swap out God for self as the center of one's life and turn to the things that God's created as replacements for him so that the creature is worshipped over the creator. And then I want to show you how all that really just leads to perverse immorality so that you get to verse 24 and Paul says, Therefore... God gave them up. God gave them up in the lust of their hearts to their impurity. Or God gave them up to dishonorable passions. God gave them up to a depraved, debased mind to do what ought not to be done. And so write this down then in your notes page. If the fruit of depravity is idolatry, the fruit of idolatry is immorality. By definition, by your human constitution, you are a worshiper. It's non-negotiable because God has created you as an image bearer. Man, by his nature, worships something. The problem is he doesn't worship his creator. And so he turns to the created order and he worships creation or he comes up with this image or an idea, and then he goes hard after something that he thinks will satisfy or fulfill that longing in his heart. If it's an image of success, think about how that plays out in a person's life. They'll make their career ultimate. Purchases and possessions will become ultimate because they have this image of success in their own mind that they've made ultimate. And it leads to the way that they live, and and honestly, it leads to a self-destructive way of living. So God gives them over then, God gives them up to their idolatrous pursuits. Now notice a second way that God gives them up here in the passage. God gives them up to impure passions. The result of their idolatrous pursuits, well, there's now this impure passion that's characteristic of fallen man, and God gives them up to their dishonorable passions. Verse number 26. You think about how idolatry is desire. You know, we sang that song. I'm so glad Parker led us in that song a moment ago. You're all I want. You're all I need. Because that issue in our hearts and lives is this issue of desire. Sin has corrupted us at the level of desire. And if we were to really get honest before God this morning, our problem is that we don't desire him from the heart. We want what he has to give, but it's not the the giver of the gift that we desire. It's the gift itself. 
And that's the essence of idolatry. So that when the created order or something from creation becomes ultimate in your heart and in your life, it leads to impure passions in your heart and in your life. I don't know if you've ever traveled to a third world nation. You, you see this pronounced a little bit more so than in our own secular society. I remember when I was in Southeast Asia, I was in different places in Southeast Asia at various points, and you see that outside of the homes there are little shrines. Or on certain hilltops there are temples and shrines devoted to Buddha or, or some other idol where people make pilgrimages to go and sacrifice and bow down in prayer and worship at these idols. And while we may not have it that pronounced in our own society, idolatry is still a problem in the United States of America and in Western culture. Because what we do then, we, we, we have this idea of something that we make ultimate and then we pursue it. And the problem is it's not the truth of God. It's not Christ. So, impure, dishonorable passions. When the train is being pulled by the engine of idolatry, it always pulls the cars of impurity and immorality behind it. And so it's interesting that Paul begins with a list of sexual sins that are committed. Outlined as a consequence of the idolatry that's been fed and fostered in the person's soul. The world doesn't worship God. And so he gives them up to their idols and then the impurity that goes along with that idolatry. John Stott has said something helpful here. He says that God's judgment on the people's idolatry was to give them over in the sinful desires of their hearts to sexual impurity. And the history of the world confirms that idolatry leads to immorality. A false image of God leads to a false understanding of sex. So that illicit sex degrades people's humanity. Whereas sex in marriage, as God intended it, enriches it. And so if you notice in the passage, Paul says that there are three exchanges really that, that take place here in the text. And he uses that word exchange there. It means to make different. To change one thing for something else. It's to substitute one thing and put something else in its place. That's the word that Paul uses in verse 23, verse 25, and verse 26. So what's the exchange? Well, the first exchange is this exchange. Exchanging the glory of God for images. And again, that's that progression of idolatry that he's already made mention of in verses 18 through 23. That's the first exchange which takes place. The immortal has been exchanged for the mortal. It's not the glory of God that man desires, but it's, it's some temporary thing. It's an image that he goes after. Do you know you've been created to experience something of the immortal glory of God? And look up here at me. You're not going to be satisfied in your heart with anything else. Because you have been created uniquely in the image of God. So that there's a longing deep within your soul for transcendence. And when God is not the subject of that longing and desire, everything else, it's going to be like you trying to take a square peg and fit it into a round hole. 
It will not fill the void deep within you. Nothing will. St. Augustine said it this way, our hearts are restless until they find their rest in thee, in the Lord, in your creator. But you see, sin has so led to a corruption in our own desires and an alienation from God that we desire everything else but the creator himself. We want his gifts. We don't want him. So we exchange the glory of God for images. That's the first exchange. And then the second exchange that's mentioned there, verse 25, exchanging the truth for a lie. Truth has been rejected and the lie has been substituted in its place. Isaiah 28, verse 15, refers to those who make lies their refuge and they take shelter in falsehood. And the basic idea is that our sin, in our sin, we will believe a lie to perpetuate our idolatry. Now you think about all of the things that sinful humanity will believe out of his unbelief. I think about the lie of evolution, just to use an example. One of the reasons that the theory of evolution has just continued to have such a hypnotic effect on the mind of modern man, despite all of its holes, mind you, is that it gives fallen humanity this working hypothesis for their own intellectual atheism. You say, what do you mean by that? I mean this. It gives a person the excuse to go ahead and embrace what he already wants to believe in his sin-darkened heart. Go ahead and explain away your existence so that you no longer have to believe in this very personal God of creation to whom you and I are accountable. You buy into the lie of evolution, then in your mind you've convinced yourself that that gets you off the hook. If you're just here and you're the ac- just some random accident, it gets you off the hook. That's exchanging the truth of God for a lie. And that's what Paul is describing here. And then notice that there's a third exchange that takes place here. Verse 26, it's exchanging the natural for the unnatural. Immortal glory has been exchanged for the temporal, for an image. That leads to the truth of God being exchanged for a lie. And then where does that lead? It leads to ultimately exchanging the natural for the unnatural. And in verses 26 and 27, Paul describes lesbianism and homosexuality and sexual confusion. And it's not really insignificant that Paul writes these words to those who were living in the city of Rome. And remember I told you way back at the beginning that he's writing from the city of Corinth. If Rome was the political capital of the empire, Corinth was really the sin capital of the Greco-Roman world. So that as Paul is writing these words, he saw depravity on display in a very pronounced way in that pagan culture that surrounded him there in the city of Corinth. Corinth was a city that resided in the shadow of the temple of Aphrodite, the goddess of love and lust and pleasure. One writer has said this, the temple of Aphrodite commanded the region from a summit, the Acrocorinth, 1,900 feet, A hilltop overlooking the city where temple prostitutes enticed worshipers from the farthest reaches of the Roman Empire. And so famous was this city's reputation that Greek poets coined the term Corinthianize, which means to practice immorality. So that the name of the city of Corinth 
becomes a synonym for sexual immorality. And in the Greco-Roman culture of the first century, while there was a form of virtue that was valued, ultimately they turned a blind eye to adultery and sexual perversion, and they condoned homosexuality, and it was widely believed to be the highest expression of love in the first century pagan mind. You you read the history of Rome, and you'll find out that many of Rome's emperors themselves practiced homosexuality. And so Paul, in mentioning this sin specifically, he's addressing a subject that many of them in Rome no doubt were wondering about. I mean, it was everywhere in their culture. It was pervasive. In fact, many of these believers at the Church of Rome perhaps were saved out of that cultural context. So lest you think that our own culture and society is different from all of the other cultures and societies of man in history, think again. What goes around comes around. If there's anything that history teaches us is that history always repeats itself. So that when a society exchanges the truth of God, all that it's left with are lies. What does the truth tell me? The truth tells me that man is made in the image of God. But you see, when he rejects that God, he no longer can understand himself. And so this third exchange described here in verses 26 and 27, it's this exchange of the natural for the unnatural. What does that mean? Well, let me show you. It's normalizing what goes against the created order which the Creator Himself has put into place. That's what that means. What was the Creator's original intention for humanity and human society? Well, go to Genesis chapter 1 and chapter 2 if you want to know what that looks like. God's intention, His original design, involved the creation of both the male, the creation of the female, to be brought together in a bond where there would then be the reproduction of life which is impossible apart from such order. But you see, the sin of homosexuality reverses creation and represents a perverse understanding of both female and male relationships. And this is really where the battle is raging in our own time. But don't think that it's something that just happens overnight. No, we're well down the... The, the track of depravity at this point whenever it becomes widespread and normalized in society around us. And it's the result of idols which have been enshrined in our own hearts and lives. One of the biggest lies that people have bought into in our generation is the lie of sexual orientation. And listen, I say that because there are even people within much of the confessing church who've adopted this understanding from the world around us and let me tell you something it comes right out of the views of Sigmund Freud this notion of orientation explains supposedly why certain men and women are attracted to people of the same sex the world around us in its wisdom says well it's because of their orientation that's 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 the way that's who they are Therefore, when you speak against homosexuality and you take a stand, a scriptural stand, to the world, you're you're, you're speaking against personhood. Because now there's been this widespread acceptance of different categories of personhood. Biblically, what is personhood? Listen to me. Personhood is grounded in the creative design 
by the creator who's created humanity, male and female, in the image of God. You want to know who you are? Let me tell you who you are. You are not the product of your desires. Sin has corrupted us at the level of our desires. Who you are, you have been created by God in his image, male or female. And that's identity, true identity. And what you and I can't do is adopt the language and the wisdom of the world. Nobody's spoken to this any, with more clarity than Rosaria Butterfield. I don't know if you know who she is. She's got a powerful testimony of how she came to faith in Christ out of a background where she formerly, and I quote, these are her words, she formerly identified as a feminist, lesbian, and committed atheist. For a number of years, she was professor of English and women's studies at Syracuse University. But she was converted to faith in Jesus Christ, and she's now an accomplished Christian author. She's written a number of books to try to help the church navigate through these, these deep waters of identity-based issues and that kind of thing. But her latest book is called Five Lies of Our Anti-Christian Age. I would recommend that you read that book, especially if you've got a loved one, a friend, a neighbor, who have bought into the prevailing worldview ideas of our time. But she's got a chapter in that book where she deals with this issue of sexual orientation. Now listen to this. The phrase sexual orientation became a 20th century articulation that who you are is determined by the objects of your sexual desire. In other words, this is a recently new phenomenon articulating that who you are in terms of your personhood that's determined by the objects of your sexual desire so that under the worldview of homosexual orientation homosexuality is a morally neutral and separate category of personhood rendering the homosexual a victim of the world that just doesn't understand sexual variance she says the bible defines personhood in the creation ordinance and situate sexual desire and practice in the context of the sexual pattern of male and female. We understand that the sin that entered the world with Adam malformed the human heart and corrupted human desires, and this, of course, includes sexual desires. And so the world, in its pseudo-wisdom, has come up with all of these separate categories for personhood, So that now when you as a Christian articulate the historic Judeo-Christian understanding of sexuality, that's why tempers, the thermostat goes up and, and, and people label it as hate speech because you're rejecting me as a person. That's the prevailing wisdom of the day. A lot of people have bought into that lie. I want you to listen to me very carefully. Personhood is determined in the creation ordinance. You are male female created in the image of God loved by God and sin has affected us all at the level of our desires doesn't matter what desires you may have uh, or not have let me tell you something all all of us have been affected by the fall so that sin gets to this issue not just it doesn't just deal with my behavior but it affects me even at the level of desire but now There's been an entire identity-based system 
where you can enshrine a particular desire that you have. You can make it an idol and build your entire identity upon it and then try to use God and the love of God as an excuse to justify it. My friend, that is the wisdom of the world. That is not New Testament Christianity. You say, Pastor, what about people who have those different desires? Let me tell you something. Again, we all have fallen desires. And as such, what do you think Jesus meant when he said, if any man wants to come after me, let him pick up his cross daily and come after me. Colossians chapter 3 verse 5 says that we're to put to death. We're to put to death mortify those desires that are earthly and sensual within us. And even after you come to Christ, you'll discover that there's this battle within between the new nature that you've been given in Christ and the old nature. But let me tell you who you are. Your identity is this, made in the image of God, blood-bought, washed in the blood of Jesus Christ, forgiven, redeemed, child of the living God, name written in the Lamb's book of life, And let me tell you what, sin may be in your biography, but it is no longer your identity. No longer my identity. And so Paul is saying, where you see this in the world, know that it's the result of immorality. And it's not just sexual sin that he mentions. But notice notice that he goes on, and number three, to say that God gave them up to immoral practices. Idolatrous pursuits, impure passions, and immoral practices. He says, since they didn't see fit to acknowledge God, God gave them up to a debased mind to do what ought not to be done. And then he says, they were filled with all manner of unrighteousness. And then he goes down the list. He mentions 21 specific sins and sin patterns that characterize the depravity of man. So he's not picking, out, picking on sexual sin here. He's not just simply singling out sexual sin here. But he's describing the immoral practices of humanity that's been given over to God by a debased mind. God gives men up to their idolatry, to their impurity, and then to their iniquity. And there's a play on words in the language of verse 28 so that it says something like this. They rejected God and their knowledge, so God gave them up to a rejected mind. He's referring to a mind that's lost its ability to tell the difference between right and wrong. It's a mind that's become so corrupted by sin that it begins to think that what is bad is actually good and what is good is actually bad. So that there's a loss of discernment. And the lines of distinction have been blurred. And again, I say, we write at the top of this heading here, but for the grace of God, there go I, because this is descriptive of humanity apart from Christ and the grace of God. This is what happens when people reject God and he lets them experience the consequences of their decision. Now listen, you make your decisions. You make certain choices. But you're not free to choose the consequences of those choices. Because God's character and and, and the truth of God and the law of God has been woven into the very fabric of the universe so that God's unchangeable law is, be not deceived, God is not mocked, whatsoever a man sows, that shall he also reap. And so Paul is describing the creation that's descending into chaos, which is the outgrowth of a rejected mind. And I can't think of anything more contemporary 
to where we are in terms of our own society than what Paul writes in Romans chapter 1. You go through the list and notice what he mentions. He mentions words that describe sins involving human character. Unrighteousness and evil, covetousness. That's the desire of the heart to always want a little bit more. Lust to advance oneself even at the expense of other people. Malice. Envy. Wow, what's envy? It's jealousy that other people have something that you don't have. And this is the culprit behind a lot of murder and killing and character assassination. It's because of envy. And by the way, even within the church, you see so many of these sins. When, when the old nature is in the driver's seat of people's lives, you, out of envy, people have done some terrible things to other people, even within the church. Deceit, maliciousness, haters of God, insolent, haughty. This is an inflated sense of self that arises from a feeling of personal superiority towards someone else. You ever have somebody that for whatever reason they just refuse to speak to you when you would meet them in public and they turn and look the opposite direction? Yeah, you've experienced that. That's the word haughty there. Foolish. Some translations say senseless. It's not that they don't have any intellectual knowledge. They may be brilliant intellectually, but they don't have moral sense. They're undiscerning of truth or what matters. No understanding of the eternal. Faithless, heartless, ruthless. These are words describing sinful human character. And then Paul also uses some words that describe sinful human conduct or behavior. Murder. Inventors of evil. The idea of man's just looking for new ways to sin. You think about technology and how technology is such a wonderful tool that can be used to a great advantage, but it can also be used to an evil advantage. Can it also be used for evil? Inventors of evil. Disobedient to parents. Now all the moms and dads in the room says, Preacher, preach on that a little bit longer, would you? No, it's just describing this overall rejection of parental authority and the breakdown of the home and society. And then Paul mentions words that describe sinful human communication or conversation. Our words, depravity shows up in our words. Strife is debate that's gone sour. Contention, the breakdown of natural discourse. People can't talk anymore. They've got to retreat to their corners and then yell at each other from different places in the room. You don't believe that, just visit Twitter for a little while. Gossips. Some translations use the word whisperers. It's evil speaking about someone else that's done in secret, that's harmful to the reputation of another person. Slanderers. This is, this is gossip that's just a step further. It's actually spreading an evil report about another person, scandalizing another person in public. And then boastful. It's a false confidence based on man's pride. Whew, that's a painful list to work through, isn't it, folks? But this is the depravity of man. And again, it doesn't mean that we're as bad as we possibly can be, but it does mean that we're as bad off apart from Christ as we can be. 
And the picture that Paul is painting here is that of the creator and his creatures standing on opposite sides of an infinitely deep, infinitely wide chasm called sin. And fallen, lost humanity is judicially separated, helplessly estranged from God. And there's nothing that I can do or you can do to ever bridge that gap. But thanks be to God that at the cross of Jesus Christ, God built a bridge to fallen man. Because what you see in the cross, you see a vertical beam and you see a horizontal beam. And Jesus bridges the gap. Jesus reconciles a sinful, rebellious, sinful man or a woman to a holy and righteous, perfect God. That's why we need the gospel. I'll leave you this as I close. Sin is serious and it must be judged. You know that? Sin is no laughing matter. It's an offense against the holy character of God. And as such, it's got to be judged. And Paul's going to make this statement there at the end of chapter 1. He's going to say the same thing a couple of chapters later. That the wages of sin, the payment for sin, it's death. But you see, God's purpose in giving man up, it's redemptive. Because rather than allowing us to continue in sin with impunity, the Lord leaves us to face the consequences of our own actions. Like what one Puritan writer said, until sin be bitter, Christ will never be sweet. God will allow you to taste the bitterness of sin and the consequences of sin to bring you to a place of desperation where you understand your need for mercy and grace and Christ. Yeah, you and I are far worse sinners than we can imagine, but we're also far more loved than we could have ever hoped. And then salvation is available and must be received. I think a fitting illustration for Romans chapter 1 comes from the words of Jesus in Luke chapter 15 where he gives the parable of the prodigal son. The prodigal son approaches the father and says, I want you to give me all that I have coming to me by way of inheritance. Basically, in that day, it was the equivalent of saying, drop dead, dad. Don't want you, but I want your stuff. And so the prodigal son takes his share of the inheritance, and Jesus says that he goes out into the far country. And he squanders it all away with sinful, rebellious living. And it doesn't really provide him the thrill that he thought it would lead him to, but it actually leads him to the pig pen. And he's wallowing in the muck and the mire of the pig pen. And then he thinks to himself, you know something? My father, his servants fare better than this. And then he comes up with this plan. He'll say, you know, I'll, I'll work my way back into my father's good graces. And I'll say, father, I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. Just make me a servant. And he arises and he goes back to his father. But Jesus says the father sees the son before the son sees the father. And you know what the father does? He runs to his wayward son. And the son can't even make his speech because there's no way he could work his way back into the father's graces. No, he discovers that he is accepted by the father on the basis of grace. And the father then clothes him in the best robe, puts a signet ring on his finger, calls for a party to be held, and folks, it's a lavish picture 
of the grace of God on a sinful humanity that's been bent on going its own way apart from God. Now listen, if that's you this morning and you say, Pastor, I've been going 100 miles an hour in the wrong direction. The Father's arms are open wide. Let's stand for prayer this morning. Beloved, we need to be so careful in how we communicate as, as men and women of faith, how we communicate our hatred for sin and that which destroys man made in the image of God. There ought to be a holy hatred for that. But never does it mean that we hate people. Because God doesn't hate people. And from time to time, someone will say to me, Pastor, are members of the LGBTQ community welcome to attend your church? To which I always reply, absolutely. Absolutely. But I want you to hear me. We need grace. And we need the gospel. And the gospel is only good news when we understand the depth of our need. And it's a painful realization, but it's a necessary one. Every head bowed and every eye closed this morning. There is no one righteous. No, not one, the Bible says. It's not self-righteousness that gets you to heaven. It's the righteousness of Jesus. And that's something that is given to you by faith and faith alone in Jesus. If you don't know Christ as your Savior this morning, can I just urge you, come to him. His arms are wide open. He loves you. And he will save you. And your identity, it's not found in some idolatrous pursuit. It's not found in some separate category that man has come up with. Your identity is found in the fact that you're loved by God, created in his image as a precious image bearer. And God gave his own son up so that you don't have to be. You come to him this morning. Lord, in Jesus' name, I'm so thankful for the truth of your word. And God, this has been a Difficult, difficult message. I've wrestled with this. Because it's not something that our culture around us understands in its unbelief. Oh, but it's such good news. Thank you for welcoming wayward sinners, repentant sinners with arms wide open to the table of your grace and your mercy in Jesus. And we need you, Lord. Our families need you. Our city needs you. Our country, the whole wide world. God, give us courage as witnesses at this late hour to not retreat, but to willingly lay down our lives for Christ's sake, to willingly bear the reproach and the offense of the cross for Christ's sake, because it's the only hope. 
for a sinful, lost world. In Jesus' name I pray.